lot to cover tonight. I got two churches tonight, Smyrna and Pergamum, two of them, and uh, it'll be a full night. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this revelation that you gave to the Apostle John that he wrote down so we would know everything we need to know has been revealed so that we could know what your message was to the church then and the church today. I pray that you would open our minds to understand the scriptures tonight and that we would, in the process, know you in a way we've never known you before and know your expectations for your church, your bride, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight we begin with uh, the second church of the seven churches of Revelation. It's the church called Smyrna. Um, it is the church that Dr. David Reagan labeled as the persecuted church. And tonight, as I read, you'll understand why he calls them the persecuted church. So let's begin with Revelation 2 verse 8. This is Jesus talking to John, telling John, write it down. Why? Write this letter to the angel of the church in Smyrna. This is the message from the one who is the first and the last, who was dead and now he's alive. I know about your suffering and I know about your poverty, but you are rich. I know the blasphemy of those opposing you. They say they are Jews, but they are not Jews because their synagogue belongs to Satan. So let's do something. Notice that he's, he's, um, he gives an introduction of who he is. In every one of the seven churches, he begins the letter by saying it's to Ephesus, it's to Smyrna, it's to Pergamum, but then he says who he is and he's the same person in all seven letters, but he introduces himself different in all seven. So in Ephesus, he refers to himself as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and he walks or stands in the middle of the seven lampstands. So that's how he describes himself. Well, he's the same person writing the second letter, but uh, you understand, hopefully you remember the seven stars are the seven angels or seven pastors or the seven leaders of the seven churches. The seven lampstands are the churches themselves that he stands in the middle of. But then to, Mar to Smyrna, Jesus refers to himself as, as a, different, uh, a different scene, a different picture. He says that he's the first and the last. So he's the beginning of the story and he's the end of the story. And then he says, so after describing him as the beginning and the end of, of all things, then he says, um, I'm the one that died. So think about that he's referring to himself in this tense. I'm the beginning and I'm the end and I'm the one who died and came back to life. It's not like, well, there's a whole lot of those, you know? No, there's just one of those. There's just one of those who's the beginning and the end, and there's just one of those who died and came back to life. And you probably ought to get to know who he is, and that's who he introduces who he is. And, and by the way, can I add this? Not only is he the one that died and rose to life again, but he's never going to die again. Never again is he going to die. So some of the other people that died and rose to life, they had to go die again. Lazarus had to go die again. But this Jesus, the beginning and the end, he died and he's never going to die again. And then go back to Ephesus, the first letter. He says to them, after introducing himself, he says, I know all the things you do. So what does he say to Smyrna, the second church? I know not the things you do. I know about your suffering and I know about your poverty. Now, that's why David Reagan calls them the persecuted church. I know about your suffering and I know about your poverty. I know, and here it comes, Jesus is looking at a church that is suffering because they're following Jesus. If they'd stop following Jesus, the suffering would be released or reduced. But they, they don't want to give up following Christ. And Jesus comes and says, I know about your suffering and I know that you're suffering because of me. Because of me. And what's he saying? As he writes this letter, here's what I'm hearing. I'm here with you. Remember the first letter? I stand and I hold all the churches in my right hand, the seven stars. 
and I stand in the middle of the seven lampstands. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. I'm here. I'm not a distant. I'm not aloof. I'm not apart. I'm here. So while you're suffering, I'm here with you, holding the church leadership, holding the church itself in my hand, in my power. Jesus is here. He knows everything. He knows our secrets. That's what he told the Ephesus church. And he knows our sufferings. He told the Smyrna church. He knows. We will never, listen right now, we will never, there's not a person in this room, I don't care how horrible your life circumstances have been or will be. You will never be able to look at Jesus and say, you don't know how hard this is. I highly recommend you not even try it. You will never be able to say, you have no idea how hard this is. You don't know about my pain. You don't know about my suffering. You don't know what it's like to follow you in these last days. Really? So let's pause in that letter. And I want you to get this because he brings up the suffering. The church is suffering. I'm not making light of it. It is suffering. So go to Luke 12, 49, and this is what I want to use to show you that we can't use the line, Jesus, you don't understand. Here's what he says. Jesus looks at his, his followers and says, I have come to set the world on fire. And I wish it was already burning. I have a terrible baptism of suffering ahead of me. And I'm under a heavy burden until this baptism of suffering. Why does Jesus call his mission a baptism of suffering? Huh? Is that what most people think of Jesus? He, come, he came to the earth to experience a baptism of suffering. Well, why did he come to the earth? Why? What was his main objective? The cross. The cross. Everything else was around a single thing. The cross. Everything had to be on the other. The, you had to go through the cross to get to anything on the other side. The baptism of suffering. He says this. I'm going to say it again. I've come to set the world on fire. To purify the world. Uh, this, this fire is purifying fire. I wish it was already burning. I wish the gospel was alive and people would accept the gospel. I have a terrible baptism of suffering ahead of me. I'm under a heavy burden. You know when the burden was realized? In the Garden of Gethsemane. When he knew that tomorrow morning they're going to put nails in my hands. And tomorrow morning they're going to put nails in my feet. Tomorrow they're going to hold me up. I have a terrible burden to accomplish. And then look at the next verse. And then he looks at them and he's looking at us and he says, you, Do you think I, I've come to bring peace on earth? How many, how many Christians today would say, Jesus came to bring peace on earth? Well, you'd be wrong. And he's going to describe what that means. Ultimately, ultimately, there will be peace on earth. I need to say this. When, when Jesus comes in glory and he stands on the Mount of Olives and he walks into Jerusalem and he's King of kings and Lord of lords and the Antichrist and the beast are thrown into, the, the, into hell and Satan's locked into prison, there will be peace on earth. But not until... He says this, do you think I've come to bring peace on earth? No. I have come, listen, listen, I've come. You think this doesn't have a meaning for the church at Smyrna? I have come to divide people against each other. From now on, families will be split apart. Why, is, why are families splitting apart? Because some in the family will believe and some in the family won't. And he'll split the family right down the middle. From now on, families will be split apart. Three in favor of me and two against. Or two in favor of me and three against. Father will be divided against son. Son against father. Mother against daughter. Daughter against mother. And mother-in-law against daughter-in-law. And daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Jesus, I want you to understand something. He's writing this letter to a church called Smyrna because the church is suffering. Why are they suffering? Then, why does the church suffer now? Because Jesus is the dividing line of all humanity. I've said recently here in the church, what I'm watching today, I'm watching in the American culture specifically, a dividing line going down the middle of all the people. You're going to line up on one side or the other. It's going to, it's going to split our nation, there will be one side or only the other side. One side will be with Christ, and they will hold to a truth that is not 
determined by man, but determined by the, the independent authority of God as revealed through the Holy Scriptures. And the other side will be, they reject this, but there will be nobody straddling the line. He is the dividing line, the separating power. He is right now holding back the darkness. He's holding back the darkness. His very presence, he's the light of the world. His very presence holds back the darkness. He's the dividing line, the separating power between life and death, between heaven and hell, between light and darkness. No one's going to be in the middle. And he's, uh, the, the truth, the truth is drawing a line. The truth is drawing a line. And everybody's going to line up on one side or the other. And, and just, he says, look at families. Families, you got two for me and three against. They're on two sides of the same line. And it's happening then in Smyrna. It's happening right now. It's happening politically. It's happening in families. It's happening in churches. It's happening in churches. The line is truth, and people are lining up on different sides. He says, you think I came to bring peace on the earth? No, I came and I laid down this line, and people are going to line up on either side of it. Look at 1 Peter 2.8. He is the stone that makes people stumble. Do you, do you look at Jesus this way? Jesus, why did you come? Well, I came, um, I brought fire to the earth to purify the earth. I've got this burden, and I've come to divide families. What? You've come to divide families. I'm going to come and divide families. Well, he doesn't want to divide families. He wants all, everyone in the family to line up on the side of truth, but they won't. Listen to what he says, 1 Peter 2 eight. He's the stone that makes people stumble. He's the rock that makes people fall down. Why are they stumbling? Why are they falling down? They stumble because they what? Why are they stumbling? Why are they falling down? In Smyrna and today, why are people stumbling and why are they falling down? Here it is. You don't have to guess because they do not obey God's word. You see, people think there's got to be more to it than that. No, there doesn't. It doesn't have to be more. They do not obey God's word. So what happens when you refuse God's word? When he splits your family down the middle and you side with a non-truth or a man-made truth when you could have had absolute truth, God truth, what's going to happen? They, what's he say? They meet the fate they were planned, that was planned for them. What do you think that is? 1 Peter 2, 4. You are coming to Christ who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people. And here's what I want you to get. This is not a maybe. This is reality. As a whole, the world has and is going to reject Christ. Do you understand that? So if you're in the room tonight and you think, well, I still have this holdout idea that ever the world's going to accept Christ. It, no, it isn't. No, it isn't. It's not going to. Many are going to. But as a, as a whole, the world is not going to reject him. Here, I'm going to say it again. You're coming to Christ. Now, he's talking to those who have sided with truth. He's the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was, reje he, he was rejected by people. But he's chosen by God for, for great honor. And you, if you've come to Christ, are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you're not just living stones. You're holy priest. And, and here's, what I, here's the reason I put this scripture in here. If you're a living stone in God's temple, which is his eternal kingdom, then you're also a priest in this kingdom, in the priesthood under the high priest Jesus. What's a priest going to do waiting for the kingdom to come? Here we go. What's a priest going to do? What's more, you are his, Jesus' holy priest, through the mediation of Jesus, what are we going to do? What are we doing? What are we supposed to be doing right now? What's Terry Cooper supposed to be doing right now? You offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. Now, if I went around the room tonight and asked you, what are the spiritual sacrifices that you offered this past week to please God? I have a feeling I'll get a lot of crazy answers. Well, I want to tell you, what do you think they are? Now, I'm putting this in the context of Jesus' letter to the church at Smyrna. See, I'm convinced that there's a natural um, spiritual sacrifice that comes from every Jesus follower. You know what it is? 
Not going along with the world and choosing to go along with Jesus is your spiritual sacrifice. Don't make this more complicated. Not going along with the world and choosing to go along with Jesus. In other words, the mere fact that you saw the line called truth and you knew Jesus is on this side of the line and you determined to stand on this side of the line, you in that moment offered a spiritual sacrifice to God. You became a priest. You know why? Because you stood in a place that's going to bring you opposition. Because the world is not on this side of that line. The world's on that side of the line. And when you get over on this side of the line, the world's going to look at you like, what makes you think you're better than us? Well, come over here. Jesus' followers will suffer in some way, somehow. Why? Because he is in us. And here's what I want you to get tonight. If he is in me, if he is in you, the world has never stopped persecuting him. And if he's in you, they're going to persecute you because they're really persecuting him. And if he's not in you, they don't need to come get you because you're one of them. So who's really doing the persecute? Who is the opposition? Remember, there's only two spirits. There's the Holy Spirit and there's the unholy spirit. There's the spirit of Christ and the spirit of Antichrist. And the spirit of Antichrist is anti-Christ. And if Christ lives inside Terry Cooper, then the spirit of Antichrist marks me for opposition. Matthew 10, 22, Jesus himself said this, and all nations will hate you. Notice all nations. <laughs> this is not geographical. It's the planet. All nations will hate you because why? Why? Because you stand on this side of that line. That line's called truth. You didn't, I didn't put the line there. Jesus came and put the line there. He's the way, the truth, and life. He drew a line. Stand with him or stand against him. He says, all the nations are going to hate you because you're my followers. But he doesn't stop there, does he? And then he says, but everyone who endures to the end will be saved. So I'm going to ask everybody a question. Using this analogy, Jesus came, he drew a line. It's called truth. He stands on one side of the line and says, come over here with me. If you come over there with him, you're going to get hated by the ones on the other side of the line. But here's my question. How long do you need to keep standing on the side of the line where Jesus is? How long? Till you stop breathing. So I'm going to tell you, when you stop breathing, you can stop. But not until. Why? He who endures to the end will be saved. Because the only people who are going to be saved are those on this side of the line with Jesus. The ones on the other side of the line without Jesus, they're not going to be saved. They're going to be lost. The church then, now we're looking at Smyrna, and the church today struggles with this. We had this debate in the staff about, I don't know, two or three months ago, we watched this video of a preacher at the Southern Baptist Convention, great, Dr. Moeller, incredible sermon he gave to the graduating class at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And, and his sermon really highlighted to me this question, why doesn't the world like us? I mean, we're nice people. I mean, we're nice people. I look around the room. Most of y'all are nice people. There's a few of you that are grumps, but <laughs> we're mostly nice people. Why in the world? Just because I stand on this side of the line, why don't they like us? Why won't they, why don't they just tolerate us? Because they can't. They can't. You see, Jesus knows this. His letter to the church at Smyrna says, I know you're suffering. I know that following me has brought you poverty. You lost your job. You lost your wealth. You lost stuff because you became a Jesus follower. And what's Jesus' letter? It says, John, write down, I know. I know. I'm over here with you. I'm not going to abandon you. You have no idea the inheritance I have for you down the road. I know. You, but so what? You, you got to stay here. Jesus tells the persecuted Smyrna church that he knows this. But many in the church today, right now in America, you still don't get it. 
We think we can water down the gospel, and if we'll water down the gospel, and the parts that are offensive, we just, shh, 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 shh. Just don't bring that up. It's going to make them mad. (laughs) Don't bring it up. And what are you doing when you do that? Listen, you think you have the power to determine where that line's at. No, you don't. That line is Christ. He is the way. He is the truth. And he is the life. He draws the line. And when you go, shh, let's be nice and they'll like us. You think that you can straddle the line. Or maybe move the line over a little bit and people will be more friendly. No, that's not how it works. We think we can water it down. The lost, here's the truth, can never accept the cross. Let's get this straight. The lost can never accept the cross because that would be the end of themselves and dying to their self is their greatest fear. They can't do it. 1 Corinthians 1.18, the message of the cross, let's just come to grips with the truth. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know it's the very power of God. We know the power of the cross. We know right now in this room, I hope I can speak for everybody here tonight. You know the power of the cross. Now listen to Jesus' words to the church at Smyrna. I know about your suffering and I know about your poverty, but you are rich. Now, how can people suffering and impoverished be rich? The world says impossible. You and I say we live it. How? The suffering of the cross has made us rich. The suffering of the cross has made us wealthy beyond human comprehension. The resurrection and the inheritance as children of God are where? For us in the room, the resurrection... Okay, that that means you're going to get a brand new body, all right? That which is mortal is going to be replaced with that which is immortal. That which is subject to death is going to be replaced with something that's not subject to death. Somebody put a dollar figure on that. You can't. Okay, that's only one part. You know what the other part is? You're the blood-bought child of the Most High God, and everything Jesus has is going to be yours while you get a new body. Put a dollar figure on that. You can't. Where are both of those at for us in the room? Where are they? They're on the other side of the cross. Jesus said what? If any of you wants to be my disciple, you must deny yourself. Take up a cross and follow me. You know where the inheritance and where the new body is, the resurrected body is? It's on the other side of the cross. You know what the cross is? Suffering. The cross is choosing to stand on this side of the line when everybody else is on the other side of the line. Well, I like the cross now looks like it's got some value, doesn't it? It's not the cross that has the value. It's what's on the other side. Okay, let me prove it to you. For Jesus, where was the resurrection and where was his seat at the right hand of the Father? Where were they? On the other side of the cross. Could Jesus have gotten either one of them without the cross? Can you? No. Could Smyrna? No. Can the church? No. But we have this idea we can. But we can't. It's on the other side of the cross. That was true for Jesus. That's going to be true for all those who follow Jesus. Well, here's the line. We must endure through the suffering, through the opposition. What's Jesus say? Those who endure to the end will be saved. And you know what the end means? The end. When do you get to retire? When do you get to stop? When do you get to go along with the other side? Never. Never. Jesus then reveals to Smyrna that he's not only, not only does he know everything about them, but he also knows everything about those who blaspheme the church. So I'm not just watching you, the church. I'm watching those who blaspheme and persecute the church. Jesus says it in his letter. Let me read it to you. I know the blasphemy of those opposing you. They say, these blasphemers, this is interesting. 
Those blasphemers say they're Jews, but they're not Jews because their synagogue, synagogues where Jewish people worship, their synagogue belongs, notice the word, to Satan. So they couldn't be Jews. This is a connection to what we used to refer to as the unpardonable sin. I don't hear people calling it that anymore, but that's what I grew up people calling it. And, and the unpardonable sin, the sin in which there is no forgiveness is what? The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a lot of people that really struggle with, I don't really know what that means. But I think what he's communicating here is very similar to this unpardonable sin. So let's go to Mark 3.28. Jesus brought it up in the letter. I know the blasphemy of those opposing you. They're pretending to be Jews, but they're not Jews. They belong to Satan. So let's go to Mark 3.28. And here's the words of Jesus. He says, I tell you the truth, all sin, all sin and all blasphemy can be forgiven. Somebody say hallelujah. That's good news. But there's another sentence. But anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit ooh, will never be forgiven. This is a sin with eternal consequences. So let's be sure of this. You don't want to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And what did Jesus just tell the Smyrna church? I know the blasphemy of those opposing you. So, so let's think about this for a minute. The church, not the building, the people who, who have Christ inside of their hearts, the body of Christ, he's the head, the church, operates then in Smyrna time and right now in Nineveh time, operates fully how? The true church always operates fully by the same means, the Holy Spirit. Stay with me. The church then and the church today operates only by the power and the authority of the Holy Spirit, right? So the church, the work of God on the earth, we're the hands and the feet and the mouth, and we're the body of Christ, right? We're the literal body of Christ. Jesus is on the earth working. He's doing it through us. So if the Holy Spirit is the power inside the church doing the work of God in this, these last days, to oppose the church... To oppose the church is to blaspheme the redeeming work of God through the blood of Christ. So if somebody opposes the church, who are they really opposing? If, if they oppose the church, if they come and attack me because I hold to this, because I stand on this side of the line, who are they really opposing? I didn't draw the line. Why are you mad at me? I choose to stand on this side of the line with Christ. Why are you mad at me? Who are they opposing? The Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is the work and the power of Christ on the earth in the last days. For this blasphemy, for this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, there is no forgiveness. And here's what Jesus tells the Smyrna church. I know who they are. I know who they are. Notice that Jesus says this also. Before, I don't want to move on until I, until I mention something else. What drew us to the church? The Holy Spirit. What would draw anybody to the church? The Holy Spirit. If you oppose the work of the church, you oppose the Holy Spirit. Jesus said what? I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. He's announcing what it will be like in the church age. I will come in the presence and the power and the form of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit drew me into the body of Christ. The Holy Spirit directs the body of Christ today. To oppose the church is to oppose the Holy Spirit. And to oppose the Holy Spirit is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Here's why I'm saying that. I want to take it a step further. If a person gets to heaven and they have not been redeemed, they have not been forgiven, they have died in their sins, and they, the Holy Spirit had called them through the church, through whatever. The Holy Spirit had called them. 
but they rejected that Holy Spirit. They, listen, I'm going to use the word carefully, opposed the work of the Holy Spirit. What is the work of the Holy Spirit? To redeem the souls of man through the truth of Jesus Christ, through the gospel. But they opposed it, either individually or as a group. They opposed it. You blaspheme the Holy Spirit. You will stand before God unforgiven. You are lost. You cannot recover. It's unpardonable. What? Because the pardon was the Holy Spirit's message to you that you opposed. You opposed the message, the work of God to redeem. It's through the church that he does this in the last days. So, notice that Jesus says, they, they say they're Jews. Now, that's a whole different area. These blasphemers, what was their blasphemy? Well, they're opposing the work of the church. Okay, that's the blasphemy. And then he says, they say they're Jews, but they're not Jews because their synagogue belongs to Satan. They, they don't belong to God, and that leaves them as the opposing work of God, right? Can, can I just be neutral? There's nobody neutral. If you don't belong to God, you belong to the opposition of God. And what is that? It's called blasphemy. The Jews are a picture, and I want to show you where, where he's getting this. The Jews, they say they're Jews. The Jews are a picture of those who belong to God through his covenant with Abraham. Now, this is important. I want you to get this. Who's the first Jew? It's a bad word to use Jew in that context because the word Jew didn't even come until much later, which came from the word Judah. But who's the first Hebrew? The first Israelite. Well, you can't call them Israelites either because Israel's name didn't come to later either. Who's the first one of them? Abraham. Okay? So the children of God are going to be the children of Abraham. Right? So the Jews all line up under the lineage of Abraham and Sarah. Okay? Abraham and Sarah. Not Abraham and Hagar. Different story. Abraham and Sarah. So... The Jews in this scene are a picture of those who belong to God. They're the children of God. How? Because God made a covenant with Abraham and we're under Abraham, so we're part of the covenant, right? That's what Jews are. Ultimately, the phrase belongs to or belongs refers to which father you belong to, which father has purchased you. Now go back up there and read it. They say they're Jews, but they're not Jews because they belong to the synagogue of Satan. So, uh, who's your daddy? Ultimately, it's going to come down to, okay, who's your daddy? So, let's go to John. What's their blasphemy? And why would they act like Jews, but they're not Jews? And how can you be Jew and yet belong to a Satan? How can you have Jewish, which means you have a, um, a genealogy, a Jewish genealogy, but your daddy's not Abraham. Stay with me. Is it possible to have the, the, the genealogy but the wrong daddy? Well, Jesus said yes. So Jesus is talking to the Jewish people, John 8, 39. And here's what they say. Our father is Abraham. Anybody see where he's going? These Jews are saying, I am Jewish because my daddy is Abraham. And all Abraham kids are Jewish. We're in the... What's the big deal to the Jewishness of all that? It's the covenant. God made the covenant to Abraham. So if I'm Jewish and I'm under Abraham, I get the covenant, right? Our father's Abraham, they declared. No, Jesus said. What? You think that went over very well? No, Jesus replied. For if you were really the children of Abraham, if you were really Jewish, you would follow his example. Instead, you're trying to kill me. Why? Because I told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham never did such a thing. No. You are imitating your real daddy, uh, father. Okay. You're imitating your real father. And you, you think they're going to say, oh, okay, that clears things up. No, they're mad now. They replied, we aren't illegitimate children. God himself is our true father. Now, how could any Jew say that? Through Abraham. Because Abraham has the promise. He's in the covenant. 
We're not illegitimate. Our father's God because we're through Abraham. And Jesus said, if God were your father, you would love me because I have come from God and I'm not here on my own, but he sent me. Why can't you understand what I'm saying? I need to do this while I say that. Why can't you understand what I'm saying? It's because you can't even hear me. If you are the children, for, excuse me, for you are the children of your father, the devil. Whoa. I bet they're really mad now. And you love to do the evil things he does. And he was a murderer from the beginning and he always hated. What's the devil hate? The truth. What is that thing that lines that separates all of mankind? It's the dividing line. It's called truth and Satan hates it. He hates it. He's a murderer. He's always hated the truth because there's no truth inside of him. And when he lies, it's consistent with his character, for he's a liar, and he's the father. He's the originator of lies. So here comes verse 45. So when I tell you the truth, here we go, I'm going to hold it up again. Jesus is looking at this. So when I tell you the words of God, when I tell you the truth, you just naturally don't believe me. And what does that mean? When you don't believe him, who's your daddy? When you don't believe him, who's your father? Satan. He knows. Jesus looks at the church this morning and says, I know. Let's keep going. I left off John 8, 847. Excuse me. Anyone who belongs to God does what? Listens gladly to the words of God. I'm holding it up. Anyone who belongs to God listens gladly. So if you're in the room tonight and you're in some rebellion of some portion of these words, be careful. Because here's what he says. Anyone who belongs to God listens gladly to the words of God. But you don't listen because why? What would make you not listen to this? What would make you? You don't listen because you don't belong to God. And if you don't belong to God, who's your father? Satan. He knows. So let's keep going. Revelation 2.10. Now we're still talking to Smyrna. Take a breath. We're still talking to Smyrna. Jesus said, don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. The devil will throw some of you into prison to test you. You will suffer for 10 days. But if you remain faithful, even when facing death, I will give you the crown of life. <laughs> Let that sink in for a moment. My wife and I were home just a couple nights ago when I was watching this video about John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, the second largest selling book in history behind the Bible. Uh, I've read it twice. I highly recommend everybody to read the book. And he wrote that while he was in prison for 12 years for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ in England. And after studying the, what got him in jail and all the trouble he went through just because he was a preacher, that's all he did. He just he refused to stop preaching the gospel of Christ. So he spent 12 years in jail. While he was in there, he wrote the Pilgrim's Progress and some other writings. And I looked over at my wife, Janet, and I said, what would you do if I went to jail for preaching the gospel? She never would answer me. <laughs> well, what would you... What if it comes to this? What if, what if the government says you can preach as long as you don't do these items? Would you still do those items? Let's read it again. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. You know who he's writing this to? A church. A real church. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. The devil is going to throw some of you into prison to test you. You will suffer for 10 days, but if you remain faithful, even when facing death, I'll give you a crown of life. Yes, there will be suffering and hardship in the true church, but do not fear the suffering. Embrace it. You know how hard it is to say that out loud? Some are going to jail. I'm convinced that if the Lord tarries, there will be preachers go to jail in America. I know some of you sitting in the room, I know you'll, you'll mock and you'll say you don't believe it. But I'm going to tell you, if you look at the speed in which this culture is changing, 
to preach against LBGT, this new movement against gender identity, against um, abortion, these social issues, to preach against them as absolute truth from the Word of God. Not man's opinions, but to just read the Scriptures and say it out loud and to stand upon it. Preachers are going to go to jail. They're already going to jail in other parts of the world, just not happening here yet. Some are going to jail, some are going to lose everything. Maybe they won't go to jail. Maybe they'll just confiscate your goods. They'll give you such a fine or cause you to go to court and your lawyer's fees will wipe you out. You won't have anything left. Think about that for a moment. Let's go to Hebrews 10.32. Do you think this is new? This is a letter to a Smyrna church that's under persecution. Look at the book of Hebrews. Here's what the Hebrews writer says. Think back to those early days when you first learned about Christ. Remember how, he rem how you remained faithful even though it meant terrible suffering? Sometimes you were exposed to public ridicule. Sometimes you were beaten. Sometimes you helped others who were suffering the same things. You suffered along with those who were thrown into jail. And when all you owned was taken away from you, you accepted it with joy. Somebody asked me one time, do you think the modern American church would endure suffering? My answer very quickly will be no. When a modern American church attends church service less than half the time, you will not endure suffering. If coming to church service is too much for you, you will not endure suffering. I'll tell you that. When it's bad weather outside and church attendance drops 40%, you will not endure suffering. You have no clue. Scott Young sent me a picture this week in Philippines where they're having massive flooding. And they had flooded this church building up to knee high. And the picture was a full house of the Filipino people sitting in their pews with water up to their knees. Full house. Preacher preaching on. Some cultures know this battle and what it means. The American culture, too soft. Too soft. Verse 34. You suffered along with those who were thrown in jail, and when all you owned was taken from you, you accepted it with joy. Why? Why would you endure suffering? You knew there were better things waiting for you that will last forever. Is it worth it? What? You know what he promised the Smyrna church? A crown of life. <laughs> Will it be worth it? It is if you know what the crown of life is. The crown of life is the resurrection into eternal life. What's the value of that crown? Maybe right now you don't know how much it's worth. There's a day coming when you'll think it's worth everything you have. What would it profit a man if you gained the whole world and you lost your soul? What would you give in exchange for yourself? What would you sell yourself for? The resurrection into eternal life trumps any death sentence of man. The resurrection cures death 100% of the time. Luke 12 verse 4. Dear friends, Jesus says, don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They cannot do any more to you after they kill your body. But I'll tell you whom to fear. Fear God who has the power to kill you and then... He has the power to throw you into hell. Yes, I'll tell you, fear him. Do you understand what would happen if we would stop being afraid of the world? If we would stop being afraid of dying itself? Do you know this power that it has over Satan? When Satan can look at you and threaten you with death and threaten you with confiscation of all of your property and all your goods, and you say, bring it. When you stopped being afraid of him, do you understand what would happen to the power of the gospel of Christ? I want to prove it to you. Revelation 12, 11. They defeated Satan. Revelation reveals how to defeat Satan. And they defeated him by the blood of the lamb and their testimony. And they did not love their lives so much they were afraid to die. They weren't afraid to die. So Satan says, I'll kill you if you don't switch over to this side. And they say, kill me. And then the Lord will raise me from the dead. Satan has no power. Now, to the reward that Jesus offers the church at Smyrna. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he's saying to the churches. Anyone, excuse me, whoever is victorious will not be harmed by the second death. Ears to hear. 
Why does he say anyone with ears to hear? Ears. I talked about this past Sunday. What are the ears and what are the eyes of man? They are the portals to the soul. What's the Bible say? Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the Word of God. You hear the Word of God? How? Through your nostrils? No. You heard it through your ears. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand what the Spirit is saying to the church. You oppose the work of the Spirit. You blaspheme God. If you are born, he says this, if you, let me read it again. I'm going to get the wording right. Anyone who is victorious will not be harmed at all by the second death. Do you know what that means? Listen carefully. If you're born only once, that means your birthday. If you're born only once, you will die twice. If you're born twice, you will only die once and maybe not even once. Do you understand what that means? Do you understand that the spiritual significance of that statement? I'm going to say it again. If you're born only once, that means your birthday. Mine's November 23rd, 1956. If you're born only once, if Terry Cooper only has one birthday, then Terry Cooper will die twice. But if Terry Cooper is born twice, I will only have to die once, and there's still a good chance as of this moment, I won't have to do that one either. So, Here's what it means. If you die to yourself and you are born again into Christ, guess what? You've got a second birthday. You were born once and you were born twice, born again. If you've got two births, the second death cannot touch you. If you refuse to die to yourself and thus refusing to be born again, you have two deaths coming. The first death will be your natural death, and the second death will be your assignment to hell. I want you to understand, the Bible is clear. It's not my words, it's His. I want to read it to you, Revelation 20, verse 12. I saw the dead. Notice the phrase, they're dead. By the way, this is the judgment of the dead, the lost. I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne, and the books were open, including the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. And the sea, those who died in the ocean, and the sea gave up its dead, and death and the grave, those in the graveyards gave up their dead, and all were judged according to their deeds. Then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. This lake of fire, that's hell, is the second death. And anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Jesus' statement to all seven churches is this. Anyone with ears to hear must listen and understand what the Spirit says to the churches. To Smyrna, he says this. If you will listen and understand what the Spirit says to you, you will not be harmed by the second death. Why? Because you've been born again. The second death has no power over you. Can you guess why Jesus said this to all seven? All seven, he said the same thing. Anyone with ears to hear should listen to understand what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, let's do Pergamum. I'm going to have to go into fast speed here. Church number three. Dr. David Reagan refers to this church as the liberal church. Anybody want to guess why the liberal church? What do you think would follow the persecuted church? The liberal church. Why? Because you didn't like how it ended for those guys. If we soften up a little bit, maybe it'll be easier on us. Before I read Jesus' next letter, I want to ask everyone a question. Is it concerning to anyone in the room tonight that Jesus is writing all this to churches? Specifically? Specifically to unbelievers? Excuse me, verses, verses. Specifically to unbelievers. Why are these seven letters to the redeemed instead of the unbelievers? Why write letters like this to the redeemed? Why would you tell the redeemed if you don't repent, I'm going to come and take away your lampstand? Why would he do that? Just food for thought. What do you think it means when Jesus says this to Ephesus in his first letter? Look how far you've fallen. A church can fall. He's writing this to a church, right? Look how far you've fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I'm going to come and remove your lampstand from this place among the churches. Why, is he, why would he say that to a church? Why is he saying that to people who are redeemed? 
Now we can move on to the third letter of Jesus. Revelation 2.12. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Pergamum. This is the message from the one who with, with the sharp two-edged sword. So the first letter, he stands among the lampstands. The second letter, what well, I'm the first and the last, the beginning and the end. I'm the one who's dead and now I'm alive. And here he introduces himself differently. Now I'm the one with the sharp two-edged sword. He's the same guy in all three. Why do you think Jesus refers to himself as having a sharp two-edged sword? Jesus can defend with the sword, and he can destroy with that sword. Which one will apply to Pergamum? Do you understand what I'm saying? He can, he can protect you with this sword. It's got two edges. Or he can strike you down with the same sword. It might help to find out who also lives and dwells in Pergamum. If you do a little bit of study, you'll find out Pergamum was a rotten place. The, the temple to Zeus, the Greek god, was in Pergamum. The temple to the goddess Athena is in Pergamum. And we're going to find out in a second, Satan's throne was in Pergamum. How would you like to live in that cul-de-sac? In Pergamum. Revelation 2.13. Jesus says, I know that you live in the city where Satan has his throne. Now remember, how's he introduced himself? I got a sword. I got a sword. I know you live in the city where Satan has his throne, yet you have remained loyal to me. You refuse to deny me even when Antipas, my faithful witness, was martyred among you there in Satan's city, even when they killed him. Do you want to live in Pergamum? Do you want to start a church in Pergamum? You know, our first thought would be, no way. You might if you believed what I'm about to read to you and you read it with the vision in your mind that Jesus is holding a two-edged sword. Because here's what Jesus says about the city where Satan reigns. I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church. And all the powers of hell are not going to conquer my church. I got a double-edged sword. You see, the church is not a building or an organization. The church is the assembly of the blood-bought children of God. Real people living under the authority of Christ in a hostile dominion of Satan. You think Satan doesn't operate in this realm? Somebody says, well, he, he had his throne in Pergamum, but he visits around here regularly. We operate, the church has always operated behind enemy lines. Understand this, but Jesus has a two-edged sword. Do you see the sword of Jesus? You need to know that it cuts both ways. It cuts for and it cuts against. So let's read something. Let's go to Hebrews 4.12. I want to understand this sword. He introduces himself first and foremost that I'm the one with the sharp two-edged sword. Satan lives here, but I got a sword. Revelation 4.12. For the word of God is alive and powerful. I'm holding it up. It's sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword. Just coincidence that he's comparing the sword to the word? I don't think so. It's sharper than a sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. What does this book do, this sword? It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes. And he is the one to whom we are accountable. Revelation 19.15. This is when Jesus comes back. As king, from his mouth came a sharp sword. What's he going to do with the sword? He's going to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod. You know what that means? Absolute authority. He will release the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty, like juice flowing from a wine press. On his robe and at his thigh was written this title, King of all kings and Lord of all lords. At this point, it is your option. As of this moment, it is your option which way the Lord will swing his sword. To protect or to destroy, to defend or to decimate. Jesus commends the Pergamum church for remaining loyal, even in the place of Satan's throne. <clears throat> Did you catch it? He commends, he, he praises the Pergamum church. You were loyal to me. You did not deny my name or the truth, even with Satan all around you. Even when they're killing people, martyring people around me. You were loyal to me. I give you this commendation. He knows. Matthew 26, 33. Peter declared, 
Even if everyone else deserts. Remember the story? Peter says, Peter's got this boldness, but he didn't know what he thought he knew. He looks at Peter and says, even if, he looks at Jesus and says, even if everyone else deserts you, I will never desert you. And Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, Peter, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny three times you even know who I am. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. The Word of God says, if you think you're standing strong. The reason I'm reading this is Jesus gives a specific commendation to the church at Pergamum that you remain loyal even at the face of death, even at the face of opposition, you remain loyal to me. Do you think this is going to be easy? I think one of my responsibilities in, in this church is to prepare the church to meet opposition. Do you think this is going to be easy? You think it's going to be easy to stand in opposition to the world as the pressure increases? No. Here's why. If you think you're standing strong, be careful not to fall. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. You know what Peter did that night? All it was was some little girl saying, you're one of them. That's it? I mean, they weren't going to, they didn't have a sword ready to cut his arm off. It was some little girl saying, you're one of them. You're a Galilean. No, I'm not. You know, somebody thinks in the church age now that the temptation will be something big. It might be something so small as somebody saying, you're one of them. No, 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 no. Would you deny him? Let me read it again. If you think you're standing strong, be careful not to fall. The temptations in your life are no different than what Peter experienced. And God is faithful. He'll not, he'll not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. I'm going to tell you, I, go, I get great strength from that sentence. In other words, I think the Lord, uh, there will be tempting. He will allow temptation to come into my life. He's not tempting. He tests. But he doesn't tempt. But he allows temptation. But I think that he, he puts a, a line on temptation that he knows how much I could stand. And he's not going to let anything go above that line. So, so here's what he says. When you are tempted, here, here's the Lord's uh, defining line. When you are tempted, he'll show you a way out so that you can endure. And that door, at some point in that temptation, something in your mind, something in your heart will show you the escape route. The escape route is not to, to get out of the temptation. The escape route is to, to not deny Christ in the temptation, to stand firm in the temptation. I heard uh, Bob Russell say one time about the sin of adultery. If you don't want to go in the house, quit walking around on the porch. There is something to that, that there's an escape. Get off the porch. Get away from this. Back away. Shut up. Sit down. Get out. There's this something that, that calls to you. And says so there's, there's temptations that have taken down a lot of people. But then there's, God doesn't allow anything bigger than you can handle, number one, and number two, in the midst of the temptation, something, there'll be a still small voice that'll say, run, get out. Jesus' letter reveals that he knows that people in Pergamum are dying for their faith. Look at what he says. You refuse to deny me even when Antipas, my faithful witness, was martyred among, among you there in Satan City. Can anybody imagine that, that we live here and somebody is publicly executed for following Christ? What's going to happen to the church? That's what happened in Pergamon. Anybody listening? What would you do? Somebody's publicly executed for following Christ. Publicly executed. Martyred. What does it mean to not deny me? He gives them accommodation. You did not deny me when Antipas, my faithful witness. What does that mean? Faithful witness. What does it mean? Is denying the word the same as denying Jesus? You know, a lot of people still aren't getting it. Is denying the word the same as denying Jesus? Yes. Say, I would never deny Jesus, but I just don't believe what that book is. You just denied him. What did I read to you a minute ago? Anyone belongs to me listens gladly to my words. Jesus said that. Can you be a faithful witness? Here's the next big question. Notice the commendation. You were my faithful witness 
when they martyred Antipas. You were my faithful witness. So I'm going to ask everybody in the room a question, including myself. Can you be a faithful witness without ever taking a witness stand? Without ever giving your testimony? Can you still be a faithful witness? Jesus is the Word, and the Word is Jesus. If you deny one, you automatically deny the other. You cannot be a faithful witness of Jesus unless you're willing to testify and give a witness testimony about Jesus. What was the commendation to the Pergamum church? You were faithful witnesses, which means you were willing to take the stand and say, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. I believe he is the Messiah, the Son of God. And on this, I take my stand. What Publicly, would you do that? Would you do that publicly if they just executed somebody who just said those same words? It's kind of getting real, isn't it? Revelation 12. Let's fast forward in Revelation. Then I heard a loud voice shouting across the heavens. It has come at last, salvation and power, and the kingdom of our God and authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to the earth, the one who accuses them before our God day and night. And they defeated him, Satan. They defeated Satan by the blood of the Lamb. And what was the, the first and foremost thing in defeating Satan always is the same thing, the blood of the Lamb. Say it out loud. The blood of the Lamb. That's it. But what's number two? Your testimony. I'm going to give a witness testimony. He is my Lord and my Savior. You know what? Throughout the ages, those who refuse to recant their testimony, they, if you'll recant, if you'll just deny Christ, you can live. Okay? Because if I deny Christ, I'm already dead. I'm already dead. And they defeated him by the blood of the Lamb and by their testimony. And they did not love their lives so much they were afraid to die. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who live on the earth, rejoice, but terror will come on the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you in great anger, knowing what? His, he has little time. Revelation 12, 17. And the dragon was angry at the woman and declared war against the rest of her children. Who's the dragon? He's Satan. Who's he declaring war on? Look carefully. All who keep God's commandments, number one. And number two, those who maintain their testimony of Jesus Christ. He's angry. Now Jesus has a complaint, actually more than one, against the Pergamum church. And I'll give you a hint. It's that tolerance thing again. Can you accept Jesus and deny the truth of his word? He gives a complaint to a church about tolerance. Sound familiar? He did it the same thing to Ephesus. Here we go. Revelation 2.14. But I have a few complaints against you. You tolerate, there's the word, some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam, who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by doing two things. He taught the people to sin two ways. Number one, by, offering, by eating food offered to idols, which would be the sin of idolatry. And number two, committing sexual sins. Two sins. In a similar way, you have some Nicolaitans among you who follow the same teachings. Balaam, if you go back and study, I don't have time to get into detail. Balaam's false teaching and leadership led the people of Israel into idolatry and sexual immorality. Balaam led them into a direct violation of the Word of God by fooling them, saying it was okay to go along with this idolatry and okay to participate in sexual immorality with these pagan people. We already covered the sin of the Nicolaitans when we read Jesus' letter to Ephesus. And let me tell you, I'm going to make something clear tonight. I, I, I should have done this when I did the Ephesus part. I think the Nicolaitan example tonight and in the church of Ephesus is equal to, equal to a modern-day American church coming out in full support of the LBGT agenda. It's the same thing. And yes, I said that out loud. It is the exact same thing. And I want to show it to you. The Nic Who are the Nicolaitans? Jesus says, I have a complaint against you because you're allowing this Nicolaitan Balaam 
idolatry, sexual immorality to pervert the church. He's writing this to a church. So who are these Nicolaitans? The Nicolaitans were believers. They were church people who had compromised their faith in order to enjoy some of the sinful practices of the Ephesian society, including idolatry and sexual immorality. The name Nicolaitans is roughly the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word Balaamites. Balaam was the prophet mentioned here in the Pergamum who introduced the Israelites to carry out their lustful desires. Do you see it? Can anybody see the American church in these two churches? Ephesus and Pergamum were there. It's in the church. Now, the sword of Jesus and the warning of Jesus to the church then. And do not look at them like it doesn't apply to us. Do not do it. This last word is to the church then and the church today. Verse 16. Jesus looks at the Pergamum church and says, Repent of your sins or I will come to you suddenly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. I will become your enemy. I came to be your savior. But if you don't repent and turn, I will become your enemy. I told you earlier, the sword of Jesus cuts both ways. It cuts in the scripture suddenly. He will defend with it or he will destroy with it. Finally, what is the reward offered to the Pergamum church? What's the reward offered to any church that overcomes, that's victorious, that stands with Christ in the midst of opposition? What's the reward? Verse 17, anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he's saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give some of the manna that has been hidden away in heaven. And I will give to each one a white stone. And on that stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except the one who receives it. What's the manna? We know manna is bread from heaven. What does Jesus refer to himself as? The bread of life. Anybody want to guess what the church is going to get? Jesus. He is the bread of life, the manna, the bread from heaven. And by the way, what if you don't get it? You will die without this bread. You can't live without this bread of life. And what about the white stone? If you look at ancient culture, a white stone symbolizes innocent. A black stone symbolizes guilty. If you went to trial in that day, the judge or the jury would give you a black stone or a white stone. You wanted a white stone. That means you were innocent. Jesus' death on the cross, the blood of Christ, has paid the full price of our sins. And we have been declared by the blood of Christ innocent before God. We are not guilty. And I'm going to ask everybody a question tonight. What do you think is going to happen to any person who dies in their sins? Unforgiven. Hail. The second death. And what about the new name? He says you get a new name. You remember Abraham? His first name was Abram. Sarah, it's kind of English is hard to pronounce the first and the second name. Abraham got a new name. Sarah got a new name. Peter got a new name. They all received new names when God called them to a new life. And we too have a new name that will connect our new life to the eternal life of his kingdom mission. So what does he say to all the churches? I'll close with it. Anyone with ears to hear must listen and understand what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray with all my heart that each one of us will have ears to hear what the Spirit has spoken tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all.